Well, it's finally here. We made it to the end. Last last week, I'm kind of sad my parents aren't going to be here. I'll be honest, I'm a little sad. They said they'd listen on the podcast. That'll put up our views, so that's okay. Um, but yes, I, I've been, uh, like I said at the beginning, I've kind of been dreading this at the same time as very excited because I'm ready for a break. <laughs> but at the same time, this book has been my focus for 10 months now. And I, I've spent all these months uh, inundating myself with this book and the content of it and uh, the, the sacredness of it, of who God is, of who he reveals himself to be in it. I'm so grateful you can be here with me tonight as I try to wrap up. We've got just a little over 20, I think it's 23 verses we're doing tonight. And then we're, we're done. Uh, but my hope is that after we go through this last section, not only will I wrap up the story of Joseph, but I can recap uh, not necessarily the story, but the, the theme of the book. And we can talk about it. And where we're left at the end of Genesis. Because when we're left at the end of Genesis, we are left, oddly enough, with what? Well, a deep sense of dissatisfaction, actually. Everything is not tied up neatly. In fact, we're left with more questions then we are answers. And of course, in part, that's because the story isn't completed, is it? But in part, that's because we know that there's more and that the story of Genesis is the partial fulfillment of those promises. And one of the things I'm excited to do, like I said, this next series that we're doing called Rest is going to be wonderful. I'm very excited for it. But part of what I'm doing in that season is preparing my heart preparing my mind also to take us to the very other end of this book. To take us to the very other end of the Bible and look at Revelation. Because we're going to go with missing a whole bunch of stuff in between from the very beginning to the very end. And I did that on purpose. I, I think it was, it was God speaking to me when, when I, he told me to do that. I really do, because there's something about starting at the beginning and and you may not know it yet, but Revelation is actually one of the most inundated books with the Old Testament. There's more reference to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation than any other book in the New Testament. It's constantly alluding to it. It's quoting it. It's thinking about the themes of the Old Testament because it's bringing it all to conclusion. And seeing Genesis, seeing the beginning, and then looking at Revelation right afterwards is going to show us that what was begun and what ends are in some ways mirrors of each other. That God is bringing us to something that was clear. It wasn't clear to the first people who lived it, but it's clear in light of what God has done that this plan has always been. That this plan was what God intended for humans. That despite the intervening years, despite Joseph and the sufferings of his life, and despite even the sufferings of our lives, that there is a plan enacted. An overarching vision 
of what God is doing. And you see that. You can see that in Revelation. But first, before I get going too much on this, let's, let's finish Genesis. This week we're going through Genesis chapter 50, verses 4 to 26, which is the end of the book. So I've titled this week, The Death of Joseph, just like last week we saw the death of Jacob. This week we're going to end the book and see the death of Joseph, which is where the book ends. So, as we go forward, thank you, Aaron. As we go forward, here's where we start. Last week, if you remember, we, we ended with Joseph saying, uh, seeing the death of Jacob, and then that Joseph is going to fulfill the, the promise that he made, right? Jacob made him swear, don't bury me in this land. Take me back to the land of Canaan. Bury me in the cave at Machpelah. Why? Because that's his land. It's the land God promised to him. It's what God gave them. So here's where we start tonight. When the days of mourning for him, this is Jacob, the days of mourning for Jacob, were passed, which if you remember last week was 70 days. That's a royal mourning, by the way. 70 days is a royal mourning. He was mourned for like a king. When the days of mourning for Jacob were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh saying, my father made me swear saying, behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. Now, again, remember, this is very elusive. We're, we're looking at something that is alluding to something. And what is it alluding to? Joseph is taking the trip of the Exodus, isn't he? Just like we've seen each of the patriarchs' lives in some way reflect the reality of the Exodus, now Joseph does too. Because he's going to leave the land of Egypt and go back to the land of Canaan. And of course, the author is, is alluding to that reality when he, when he talks about this. In fact, he even mentions things like, well, they left their little ones in flocks and herds. Remember, in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, when that's going on, one of the things Pharaoh says one of the times before he hardens his heart, he says, fine, go up and worship your God, but leave your little ones and your flocks and your herds. Why? Well, because that's the proof that they're coming back. You don't leave your flocks and your children if you're not going to come back. You don't just abandon those things. They're collateral, right? <laughs> hey, this is the insurance. We're coming back. So when they leave this, this is clear. Joseph is saying, oh, I'll, I will return. I'm coming back. I'm not going to go up to Canaan and just stay there. Even though it's my land, my father gifted to me. I, I'm not going to leave. I, this is my home. Egypt's my home. And of course, Pharaoh, in, in the days of, of Exodus, in the days of Moses, 
Pharaoh says, fine, go ahead. Go out into the wilderness, worship your God, but leave your flocks and your little ones to ensure that they would come back to, their, to the land of their slavery, right? So they go up and they're a massive company. It's, it's a huge group that all goes together. And, and oddly enough, it seems strange, but even Egypt, like the Egyptian officials and the elders, they all go with to celebrate the burial of this great man, the father of Joseph who they have come to know as a very great man, right? And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. So all of this great company goes up, and the people of the land, they're going to see it. They reach the threshing floor, they're beyond the Jordan, and, and they're... Interestingly enough, that's again, might be an illusion because it seems to imply they're taking the route, the same route that the Exodus did as well. But they come up and they see this great company, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and they're like, what is this? Why is Egypt even here right now, let alone this great company? When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. And so they named that place Avel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. Avel Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is the Hebrew word for Egypt. It's the Semitic word for Egypt. So here it says Avel Mitzrayim, a mourning, a mourning of Egypt or uh, the meadow of Egypt. It could be translated either way, but most likely the mourning, right? Because they're mourning. The mourning of Egypt. So they, they literally named this place. It so affects the inhabitants. They named this place after Egypt. The Egypt this is where the Egyptians came to, to grieve. They'd never seen anything like it. So thus Jacob's sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre which Abraham had brought, excuse me, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So they returned to the land that is now their home. Egypt's become their home. And so they all go back. His brothers do, his family does, Joseph does, all the Egyptians do, right? And they return. But there's one nagging thing left for this family, right? This family, we've seen them go through so much, the family of Jacob, the family of Joseph. And the one nagging thing is this. Now that daddy's gone, were we ever really reconciled? Was it real? Or was this just for dad? Is this something that, you know, Joseph was really serious about? Or is this something that just, you know, he wanted to appease dad and now that dad's gone, it's time for vengeance. In fact, we've seen that story already kind of in Genesis, right? Because what did Esau say about Jacob? He said, once Isaac dies, once our father dies, I will kill him. The idea being once the familial connection, the the idea of their parents, once that connection is gone, there's no love left. I owe them nothing. 
They've done nothing but harm to me. And now Joseph is in a position where he can do something, isn't he? That he can make vengeance happen real quick. So the brothers are worried. And here's what they do. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So now listen, listen carefully and what's going on is that they sent a message. This is not about them personally going to Joseph, is it? They sent a messenger because they're worried about what's going to happen. Now, the text doesn't say whether this is made up or not. That's the first thing to notice. The text has never said that Jacob said this. So we don't know. We certainly have not seen proof that he did say this. But it also hasn't specifically addressed the fact that he didn't. It's very possible he could have. It's very possible that they could be saying something that's true. That when Jacob heard about what happened, that he had some impetus to say to Joseph, hey, forgive your brothers. But it also could be a fabrication. It's hard to tell. At least from the outset, it it looks kind of like a a fabrication, doesn't it? The way it's written kind of seems like they made up a message. We've got to tell Joseph something. But again, that kind of seems at odds with the character they've developed since then, doesn't it? The men that they've proven themselves to become. I tend to think that it's probably something that Joseph, or at least, excuse me, that Jacob at least had mentioned in passing. So they give this message because they're worried. Even the way they talk, forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. They're trying to make, emphasize the connection they have as highly as possible. Remember, we serve the same God, Joseph. And then Joseph weeps when he receives this message. It's not from his brothers, like I told you, remember. It's from messengers that they send. And Joseph weeps. Why does Joseph weep? I don't know. Could be a lot of reasons. Could be a lot of reasons that Joseph is moved by this. One, I think Joseph really believed in the reconciliation. Joseph wasn't pretending, was he? For him, it was real. Everything he said to his brothers, he meant. There was not a single part of him that was like, wait till dad dies. In part, I think that's the weeping. I think he's weeping because he just is shocked that his brother's received it that way, that they're still worried about what would happen after Jacob died. Interestingly, another reason he could have uh, wept, could be weeping, is because this is actually the first time they've said they were sorry. It's the first time the brothers in the text have been said to say they are asking for forgiveness. Earlier when they came together, we saw they had conversations, they talked, but it never said what they talked about, never said the content of what they said. 
This is the first time in the text that we see them ask for forgiveness. Maybe that's what Joseph was weeping about, that they finally thought to ask to be sorry for what they had done, to say we were wrong, we, were, we transgressed against you. Maybe Joseph is just remembering the pain of what he suffered. And hearing someone beg for forgiveness for the wrong they did, he just brings up all the pain all over again. I don't know. Maybe it's all of those. But when Joseph hears this, he weeps. So his brothers now come. His brothers also came and fell down before him. And they said, behold, we are your servants. We are your slaves. And here it is. The key verse of the entire Joseph story summed up. The entire Joseph story summed up in Joseph's response right here. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid, for I will provide for you and your little ones. So Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's a great line. I love that. It's a great verse. Joseph truly is a righteous, godly man. No animosity, no hostility. Just love. Just the desire to provide for his family. And to remind them of the truth that stood behind the entirety of this story that Joseph, at this point in his life, can finally see with clear eyes. Yeah, you intended this for evil. But God intended it for good. What you had planned, what you thought was going to give the dark desires of your heart what it was going to bring them to fruition. That was actually the plan of God to save many lives. Wow. So now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, and now this is a change. When it says he spoke to his brothers, it's talking about his kinsmen. doesn't necessarily mean his actual blood brothers. How do we know that? Well, one, because Joseph is the second youngest of all of them. So it's very possible that all his brothers died prior to Joseph. This is not something that Joseph would probably even be able to expect his brothers to fulfill. So he's speaking to his his kinsmen, his brothers, the, the people of Jacob, right? The people of Israel who will become. They're not yet, but they will become the people of Israel. He said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you. 
and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. And that's where our book ends. That's it. That's the end of Genesis. Now, like I said, the Joseph story is summed up with that idea of of God taking the evil that man intended and using it for good in his plan. And that's key to the story. It's the key to understanding everything that happens, that the suffering under which Joseph endures. That was actually the plan of God. And that seems a rough lesson to take. It seems a hard lesson to understand. But it's actually not unique. It's not the only time we see that story. Because the story of Joseph is often looked at as a parallel to the life of Christ in the New Testament. When we get to the life of Jesus, there's a lot of parallels between them. Right? We see in Jesus the righteous sufferer. We see in Jesus the one who suffers though he had not deserved it. We see a man who pays for what other people planned. (laughs) But what's more interesting, and I think the better parallel between the two stories, is this. It's that key verse I just read. What you meant for evil, God intended for good. And you know what? It's the exact interpretation that Peter takes. Of the Jesus story. You go. To the. The paradigmatic story of the gospel. You go to the quintessential story. Of the gospel. The the sermon of the gospel. It's found in Acts 2. Right. This is the birth of the church. This is the Holy Spirit being poured out. On the apostles. and, and, And the disciples all together. And Peter, he stands up, right? And they they see them. They're speaking in tongues. They think they're drunk. The people think they're drunk. And and Peter stands up and gives this sermon. And the sermon he gives is, is this great gospel sermon, right? And he starts by explaining what they're seeing. So he gives the prophecy from Joel. And he starts talking about, no, no, no. What you see happening here is, is what Christ poured out. And he reads the passage from Joel and he talks about that. He's like, we're not drunk. We're actually preaching the word of God. We're actually telling the message of this story. And once he explains what they're seeing in in terms of the Holy Spirit being poured out in these last days, he goes on and he starts talking about who Jesus is. And here's what he says. Men of Israel, 
Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter makes the exact same point to the Jews that the author of Genesis makes about Joseph. You thought, you thought in your scheming that you were putting to death this innocent man. You thought you were taking him and putting him in the hands of the Romans and that they were going to crucify him and that this innocent man, his blood that was precious beyond belief, you thought you had won out. You thought you had defeated him. You thought you had had made him pay a price that he didn't deserve to to pay. But what you didn't know, he was handed over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. What's the greatest evil humans have ever done? There is one. There's one sin that stands out above the rest. You can think about all kinds of things, and I'm sure we can think about some pretty dark things to try and pinpoint what's the worst. But we know. We know what the worst thing humans have ever done. The greatest sin humanity ever did was to crucify the Lord of glory. We took that precious, beautiful baby that we sang about tonight. We took that man who who maintained that innocence throughout the entirety of his life. Perfect, sinless, blameless, walked with God, using the words that Genesis likes to use, right, about Noah and those. Jesus was that. He was sinless, blameless. He was righteous, blameless, walked with God. And he was sinless, perfect. And they took that wonderful, perfect man and they killed him. Worst sin humanity's ever done. He crucified the Lord of glory. And the worst thing that humanity has ever done was was according to the plan. According to the plan of God. Now, regardless of what you think about predetermined events generally or or whether the actions of our lives are free or not or whatever you believe philosophically, biblically, biblically, we know that at least one event, the most important event, was predetermined. And that's Jesus' crucifixion. And I would extend that. We know that it was true of Joseph too because the scripture says that about Joseph. What they intended for evil, God intended for good. 
God intended it to happen. And here we see the same thing. That the intention of God was behind what men had planned for evil, God was using to bring the greatest good. And what? What does Joseph say? And to preserve the lives of many. That's Jesus. The Joseph story is the story of Jesus. The prison, the suffering represents the death. The exaltation, the honor, the lifting up to the second highest in, in Egypt. That's the resurrection. That's his exaltation. The story of Joseph is the story of Jesus. The seeds of Jesus we see all throughout the book of Genesis, don't we? We see it in the story of Joseph. We saw it in the Akedah, the binding, when, when Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain. This wonderful picture that I've used this entire series. We saw Jesus when we see that story of the father laying his son down as a sacrifice. And at the end, what does God say? He says, no, Abraham, stay your hand because I will provide the sacrifice. Is God talking about bringing a ram? Is God saying, I'm going to make sure there's a ram to lay on the altar? No. Genesis 22. He's talking about Jesus. I myself will provide the lamb. That's what God did. All the seeds of what we were going to see in Jesus were started in Genesis. And so as we wrap up the story of Joseph, like I just told you, it, I wanted you to see the parallels. See the parallels between the story of Joseph and the story of Jesus. It's a precursor. It's a precursor to what Jesus did. It points to him. But also, if we look at the book of Genesis as a whole, we think through that. There's a theme through that too. And it's what I titled this series, A Land, A Seed, A Blessing. And so we have to ask ourselves, at the end of the book of Genesis, where are we left as it relates to that theme? as it relates to the promises, as it relates to a land, a seed, a blessing. The land promise, where are we at? Well, Jacob has some land that is his in the land of Canaan. He owns some property. But where are we left at the end of Genesis? God's people are not in the land that is going to be called theirs, the land that was promised to them. They're left in Egypt. They're left in Egypt, and we've already had it told to us that they will be enslaved. We have had the prophecies in the books tell us they're going to be slaves in that land. So yeah, has the, has the promise started to be fulfilled for the land? You betcha. Jacob has some land. 
His descendants have an inheritance. But they're not in the land. And what about the seed? They're a lot more numerous than we ever thought possible. I mean, look back to Abraham. What did it look like then? We were like, God, please let Abraham have one. Let him have one kid. If we could get there, that would be good. Now they're looking pretty good. They went down with 70. That's, that's pretty good. They're still having kids. Joseph has seen his grandkids. There's a lot there. We've made some progress. Does it look anything like numerous as the sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky? Does it look like that at all? Not even close. Not even close. Has the promise started to be fulfilled? Yeah, to, to an extent. They've had some descendants. They've had the seed come to pass. But the promise has not been fulfilled. What about the blessing? That's the Joseph story. Joseph rose to prominence. He rose to power. And he blessed the world. Or at least what they, they knew of the world at that time, right? He was a blessing, not just to the people of Egypt, but to his own family. And he took care of them and provided for them. But even beyond that, he provided for Egypt. He provided for the lands beyond that were all impacted by this famine. And he was a blessing to all of them. Not only did Joseph get blessed by God, taken out of the pit, given the second highest position in in, in Egypt, but not only was he blessed, but he was a blessing just like God promised. And he blessed the world. That's wonderful. That is a fulfillment to an extent of that promise, the promise of blessing. But has the blessing been fulfilled? The blessing to all the families of the earth. Well, when we leave off Genesis, where are we at? The two sources of blessing on the face of the planet are both dead. Jacob's gone, the one who blessed Pharaoh and blessed his sons and took care of of being the, the patriarch, the one on whom God's blessing dwelt. He's dead. And when we end Genesis, the very next chapter, who's dead next? Joseph. The two people who blessed the world, who were fulfilling the promise of blessing of God, they're gone. Who's left? Who's left to fulfill the blessing promise? Because the text has only shown us that these two men are it. They're both dead. The book of Genesis is beautiful. The stories in it are so touching. They're so familial. They're so moving. They teach us so much about who we are as humans. They teach us so much about who God is as God. But it is not complete. It is not a book that is wrapped up with a cathartic ending. Wow, that just feels real nice. It really brings peace to my soul. That's not Genesis. 
The reason I told you I want to go to Revelation next, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the, of the sermon, but I want to reiterate. The reason I want to go to Gen- to, to, from Genesis to Revelation directly there to see the ending is because I, I want you to see how the promises are fulfilled. Because if I left you here, the promises, they, they haven't come to pass they haven't been brought to fulfillment. But when we go to Revelation, and when we reach Revelation 21 and 22, and you see the vision that John has, New Jerusalem come down out of the sky, set on the earth, and in it are no wicked. All the wicked, all the evil of this earth have been put out of the city. And the city stands holy and pure with all the people of God brought into it. And guess what? There isn't even a temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because God himself is the temple. And you see him face to face. And not only do you see him, not only is he the temple, not only is there no sun for light because God himself is the light, but even more than that, he comes to you and he wipes every tear. He dries every eye. No more sickness, no more death. And finally, When that city comes down and heaven and earth are one, finally, we have a land. We're not foreigners and nomads any longer, but the people of God have a land. And the seed, he's already come. It's Jesus. And he dwells in that land. And the blessing, which according to Galatians, the blessing of Abraham, the promise of the Spirit, that blessing has been poured out on the nations. It's been poured out on the people of God so that the blessing of Abraham, the promise of the Spirit, has been given to God's people and they are indwelt with his Spirit. A blessing to the nations. And people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation brought into the city. When you see that vision, then you will see a land, a seed, a blessing fulfilled. What God always intended for humanity. That they would have a land, a seed, and a blessing. And so even though I titled this series A Land, a Seed, a Blessing for Genesis, it's just the start of those things. They can't become fully realized in this book alone. It takes all of the scriptures to the very end. In fact, it goes beyond our lifetimes now to a day yet to come. 
to see those promises fulfilled in their entirety. They've definitely been fulfilled more now than they ever were in Genesis. We have the Spirit drawing us toward the fullness of God, towards the end of all things, so that we can see this world brought to consummation, that it will be made new. All these great promises. We have more than than the Old Testament believers ever could have imagined. Things they only dreamed of available to us now as new covenant believers. But even now, the promises have not been fully fulfilled. We're awaiting our king to return. So when we look at Revelation together, and I'm prepared for that season, I cannot wait to share with you that vision in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 so that you can see what it looks like when the promises have finally been fulfilled. A day we all still wait for and a day that even those already in heaven are still waiting for. Revelation tells us that. They're still waiting for that day too when we all can be reunited, resurrected, and live together on this earth, made new the way God intended. Can't wait to share that with you. And that's all I have for Genesis. That's it. I hope this next series, as we take this time, this break, I hope it will be a benefit to you. I hope it will be a blessing to you. I hope we will all, all find the rest that we're titling this series after. Pray we'll all have this season to be renewed and refreshed and uh, revitalized. That's my prayer for this next season, for this next series. You're not going to see me up here like this for maybe, I mean, I'll probably be up here at some point. You can guarantee that, but not like this for a couple months. And uh, I'll probably miss it next week. (laughs) But for now, I'm ready for this next season for us. I'm excited for it. Uh, My prayer, (coughs) excuse me, my prayer um, is that you guys would come back next week. Uh, Next week's going to be a unique week um, because we've got some some special news, special news that I want to share with you next week. Uh, just some things we've been doing uh, as, as leadership and working on. And uh, I switched it up. I, I was going to do our Christmas service next week. I'm actually going to change that. I'm going to do our Christmas service on the 26th, and we'll just you know have a nice time in a more traditional service, which is strange to me, but a more traditional church service um, around Christmas. And uh, I'm excited for that. But uh, next week... I wanted to share some things with you and it'll be a unique week because it's just going to kind of be me. I don't know, rambling for an hour, I guess, but it's really cool what I have to share with you. I'm really excited about it because it's about Wellspring. It's about something very core to Wellspring and who we are. Uh, And more importantly than that, uh, we have a gift for you next week. Um, Some things that we got that are are cool. I, I hope you'll like it. 
Um, if you're not going to be here next week, don't worry. We will save a gift for you for the next time you show up. Whenever you come, we'll have it ready for you. Uh, but if you can be here next week, I would, I would love you to be here um, because we have a gift, and I want you guys to make sure. And, and this is really our core. You know, I, I hope uh, five, ten years from now, we can look back and we'll all remember the gift that this core group had. Maybe no one else will have it because it'll be out of style by then. I don't know. But but we have it because we were this, this group at the beginning of Wellspring. And, um, yeah, yeah, I'm just excited to share it with you because I think it'll be, uh, I think it'll be encouraging. And I hope it is. Um, but it's cool. It's cool. I'm excited to share it with you. Uh, one other thing I wanted to remind you guys, just to remind you about the Christmas party on the 18th. So on the 18th of December, that's a Saturday. Uh, that's next Saturday. Uh, next Saturday, we're doing our Christmas party. So it's at my parents' house, and we're going to get together and just uh, just hang out, have a good time, have some gingerbread houses, and uh, decorate them, have a cookie exchange. Guys, again, if you don't want to bake cookies or buy them or whatever, just come and get some cookies. Uh, that's totally okay. If you want to bring some, please do. Um, and just have fellowship. You know, that's really key to what Wellspring is about, is that idea of community, that we have the chance to actually live life together and be together, and, and it's important. And, um, you know, that really is where the relationships grow. I love preaching. You know I love preaching. You know I love the Bible. But I recognize that we're not growing in relationship the same way that we do when we live life together that we do when I'm up here on stage. That's just clear. We got to live some life together, not just listen to me preach and think our relationships are going to grow. So um, I hope you can make it. Uh, If you can't on Sunday, I'd love to see you all because I want to make sure you get your gift. Uh, I love you all. Thank you for sticking sticking it out with me for these 10 months. Uh, It's been my privilege, it's been my honor to teach the book of Genesis to you, a book that is dear to my heart. Um, And if you don't know this, I love the Old Testament. So you'll, I mean, don't, don't think you're done with the Old Testament. There's a lot left to come, right? I got to get through Job at some point before my parents leave this earth. I got (laughs) to, I got to, I got all kinds of stuff I want to, I want to impart to them before they leave. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to the Old Testament, I promise. Uh, we're going to do some New Testament too, obviously. Uh, but I just really am so grateful for each one of you. Thank you for being here tonight. And thank you for for the love that you guys have, have offered me as, as pastor of this church. It has been uh, just an honor, truly been an honor to be able to do this and to preach God's word. And I thank you for it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, may God bless you this Christmas season. I pray that you see him afresh. I pray you see him afresh and you are again amazed at the power of his incarnation. That the eternal son would be humble enough to become man. Powerful. 